Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Geo Inspirations podcast with Joseph Kursky. Greetings, all. Welcome to another episode of Geo Inspirations. And I'm so excited for today's episode because I have here Dr. Sarah Bednars. Greetings, Sarah. Howdy. Good to have you on here. I think many people in the geo, enviro, GIS education communities know who you are, but why don't you introduce yourself, maybe touch a little bit on the journey that you've been on, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. Uh, First of all, thank you so much for inviting me. Joseph, it's such an honor to always get a chance to talk to you and um, to be able to be part of a podcast. I don't think I've ever been on a podcast before, so I'm very excited. Uh, I am a retired professor from Texas A&M University, so I'm a professor emeriti, um, and I have been retired since 2016, but uh, the days get filled in many different kinds of ways still, even though I'm not actively teaching uh, or at a university. Um, but uh, my, my journey was that I started as a middle school social studies teacher. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in geography, a master's of art in teaching geography. Um, And I taught uh, middle school and high school for 10 years. Um, But, and I loved it. I absolutely adored it. I did it in Illinois. um, And then uh, my husband, who's also a geographer, and I moved to Texas. And I taught uh, in a small rural school in Texas for two years, and then moved to the big city, College Station to teach in their <laughs> school district, um, but but I, I I felt so passionately about the value of geography for for students for citizens for everybody that um, that was what I found most fulfilling for me was to be a a teacher and and even though I wasn't actually always teaching geography you know I was teaching U.S. history for example but I always thought of it as historical geography um, or when I taught economics I thought mm, really what I'm teaching is economic geography so I, I had this career um, in in public education for a long period of time but through the whole thing I I, I always wanted to know what can I do better to help students learn some of the thornier issues, the thornier concepts of geography. You know, we we live a life where we are so used to thinking chronologically, Um, you know, every year uh, we have a birthday and we mark the passage of time. We measure how high we've, we've, um, grown in a year. So it, it, we have a, this, this kind of measure of time we're very well aware of, but nobody really spends a lot of time teaching kids about space um, and place as, as a conceptual idea. So I wanted to know how I could do a better job of, of doing that. And it was really simple. It was just things like, what is the most effective way to teach latitude and longitude to eighth graders? Um, and, and so as a result of this, I met a wonderful geography educator by the name of Jim Croft, who is at Texas A&M. And he said, well, why don't you start a PhD um, to, uh, to answer some of these questions that you have? And, and, and that was what I did. I kind of delved into the learning sciences, curriculum and instruction, um, and, and got my PhD. And then I was able to stay at Texas A&M, luckily, um, as a professor uh, in a various 
kind of capacities until 2016. So that's kind of my life journey there, um, past and present positions. But even though I left the classroom and I, I actually never planned on leaving the classroom, you know, a lot of people get a PhD because they don't want to continue teaching in a high school or middle school or whatever, wherever. I always intended to go back, but then circumstances just led me to, to change that, to change my mind and to continue at the university. So. Well, one of the things that I've always respected about you though, Sarah, even though you never per se went back to K-12 education as a full-time instructor, you always did a ton of teacher professional development. And that's how I met you actually is through my own journey in GIS and education and finding out about your work. And you were one of the very few people that were actually in both worlds, university and K-12. So uh, it's neat to, 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 could you touch on that a little bit? You, you must've been one of the very few people that were able to successfully, I don't know how you got support from the university to do this, but all your K-12 research while you were at the university, how did you weave that in? Um, well, it, it really was kind of born out of the success of the Alliance Movement starting in 1986. Mm. Um, I was one, one of the group of teachers who went for the first summer to the National Geographic Society and became a teacher consultant. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I came in a slightly different situation than most of the other people who were basically history teachers um, who were who were learning geography? I knew geography, but I was learning about this whole uh, realm of professional development. How do you do effective professional development? Um, and and that's what I cared about. I wanted to improve the quality and quantity of geography education, whether that was through my own work or through the work of others. I just wanted to facilitate that whole process, and that's what Gil Grosvenor's vision was from National Geographic Society to create this. National Alliance, now international, um, to help university professors who know the content and classroom teachers who know more about how to teach um, and to bring these two groups together to, as I said, improve the quality and quantity of geography education. So that's always been my mission to improve that quantity and quality issue. And something you're touching on now we should, we should pick up before the end of this, and that is how do we keep this going and how do we maintain yeah, the energy level that you and others blazed? Um, but one of the things that um, I wanted to ask you about right here, because you're one of the few emeritus professors that I've actually had on this Geo Inspiration. So just for the, the benefit of the listener, you, and you touched on this, that your days are filled and you and I interacted recently in the Nebraska GeoFest. You were the keynote right. speaker. I, you're a hard act to follow. I followed you with a, a, a short workshop, but it just shows that you're, are geographers ever really retired? I mean, in the sense that, uh, how, are you able to at least get out of the landscape a little bit more than when you were full-time uh, professor? <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that there are, there are people for whom teaching their position at the university is just a job. And I respect those people. So they finish their, their careers and they mm -hmm. give away mm -hmm. their books and that's the end and they go live the rest of their lives. But for me, it's always been more about mission. And I, I mean, I'm a 
jerk when it comes to geography education. I, I just think it's so important. You're tenacious. Yes. All the time. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm not one of those people who separates my identity from my, my position, my job, my skill set. And so uh, I, I, I am still working in geography education, even though I'm not formally teaching it or getting paid to do it or any of those kinds of things. But it's, it is a, a, an, a vocation. Mm-hmm. I think. And for the benefit of the listener, they're not seeing what I'm seeing behind you, but you've got your whole bookshelves full of maps and globes and, and books <laughs> and, and journals. And, and, so. uh, and when we moved from Texas to New Mexico five years ago, um, I had to give away so much stuff. It just pains me. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I have a carefully curated collection of things that I am still doing. I can relate. I had to downsize my office even before COVID uh, quite severely. And when you're in education, I'm sure you and many of the listeners can relate to this. You think I'm going to hang on to this resource because I'm going to develop a lesson based on this at some point. And then I had so much, I realized, Joseph, you're not going to live long enough to develop a lesson on every single one of these things you have. So you have to cut it down. <laughs> but it, like you're saying, it, 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 um, it pained me because I'm like, oh, but I put it someday. I'm going to develop this this lesson on X topic, but then that X topic took up, you know, a square meter or a square foot of my bookshelf. So uh, I know I, I had like six fi- giant filing cabinets of folders of lectures I'd given and ideas for and articles I'd collected and you know all that and. And I finally paid a graduate student just to go in and clean it all out because I couldn't do it myself. Oh, I need Uh this. And I just said, nope, take it all to the dumpster. Recycle it, please. So, yeah. Well, it shows that, uh, yeah, we're very passionate about all things geo and education. One of the things (laughs) I was wondering was... um, Touching on what you were saying about one of the things that you're actively doing, I have here your book, Spatial Citizenship Education, that you edited with Dr. Shin, and I use it quite often. Do you want to touch on what spatial citizenship education is and why it actually matters in conjunction with what you mentioned earlier about geo-ed and professional development? Well, it's it's interesting you say that because I was just, I was just thinking the exact, exact same thought that... W- it's every 10 years, there's a new movement. There's something that's, that's interesting that's happening. Maybe it's five years, maybe it's accelerating more than that. But um, what what's keeps me interested right now is this kind of burgeoning interest in citizenship education, however defined. Um, and so um, we, and we mean not a citizen per se, like actually joining something, but, um, you know, or becoming a, a formal citizen of a country. Uh, but in terms of mm-hmm. what you as an individual can do, you as a group of people, a society can do to try to improve the world in which you live. And this, for a long period of time, geographers were not that involved in kind of mainstream social studies, citizenship kinds of activities. Um, we did a lot of kind of activities within the geography education community that were related to citizenship and the development of um, kind of civic education ideas and goals. 
But um, but I think that it's now time that geographers jump in in a significant way to the idea of developing better members of society. Um, and we can do it through spatial technologies, geospatial technologies. And that's a really exciting to me that that just like aha moment about 12 years ago when I heard people uh, actually in Europe, the Space It Project, um, they got people in Austria, um, in Salzburg, um, began this project with formally linking classroom teachers, their, their students, and kind of GIS professionals to try to improve the way that students collect data, process data, and then use that to address their own societal questions and issues. And I thought, brilliant, that is brilliant. So I've been, that's kind of been where I've been working a fair amount um, lately. The idea of empowering people to think about where they live through maps and through spatial technologies. That's kind of spatial citizenship. So the idea of spatially assessing a neighborhood, mapping it, and then doing something with it, like identifying where there's an accumulation of trash and, and thinking about where could, how can we ameliorate that, that situation through spatial analysis. And as you and I have talked about numerous times, usually in very brief snippets as we see each other at conferences in hallways or now in the virtual sense, certainly the, the technology, the spatial technologies, the geospatial technologies have advanced so far. And I used to tell you this story, um, but for the benefit of the listener, I used to take this VHS tape where Sarah Bednars and a couple of other people were talking about why they're using GIS in education with me to various events. I actually had this physical tape that I would clutch and take with me because it was the very first video, I believe, in on the entire planet of people talking about that. And I was so inspired. It actually inspired me for my own dissertation. Coming back to what you're saying about spatial citizenship and geospatial technologies, certainly with the advent of you know, you've got story maps, and dashboards, and survey one, two, three that you can crowdsource and instantly get your data on a map and then start analyzing it and then look at real issues like you're saying, urban greenways, water quality, public art, whatever, um, walkability in your own community. It, right. it's, isn't it amazing the, the, the evolution of these tools? It, it, it is extraordinary. And, um, and students just gravitate to the, those kinds of technologies. They love the, the idea of being able to collect their own data and doing something with their own data to answer questions that they care about. And I think that's what uh, civic education should be all about, training people, preparing people, I don't like the word training, preparing people to address issues that they confront on a daily basis um, with the, using these, these various technologies. And it doesn't even have to be a technology. It just has to be knowing how to ask the questions in ways that we can find solutions to those problems. In conjunction with a social studies educator project in Western New York, they asked me to include spatial citizenship. So that's, that's why I've got your book right here at my fingertips so I can draw from it. But right. also in conjunction with what you're saying, it is... An example, that project, which is social studies educators, some of which are teaching geography, some are teaching history, economics, civics, et cetera, they want to use these tools. And one of the projects that we had them embrace last summer was 
here is a object in your community that usually we don't think too much about. Storm drains are actually really important. Let's map those and get the educators and students to look at river systems and how water is treated and how it's processed and the availability of water. And then, so we started with survey one, two, three, storm drain mapping. But then, as you know, the map is not the endpoint. It's really the starting for broader and deeper inquiry. Absolutely. So your phrases and the, the, the message that you were sharing, yeah, that's just an example of what we hope will keep spreading in, in other districts all around the world where you've got it engaged students, faculty that is at least a little bit comfortable with some of these tools, but right. also I love what you're nudging people to think about that whole geographic inquiry model, asking good questions, gathering data, assessing it, et cetera. Absolutely. And so one of the things that I, um, I did as a project, got funding from National Science Foundation, was to work with science and social studies teachers to introduce spatial thinking and geospatial technologies into their classrooms. And they, I went out with the middle school science teachers and they ran a field trip over to a local park and they had all these activities that the kids did. And one of them was that they were supposed to pick up scat, you know. So all of the uh, seventh grade boys, of course, were like throwing scat at each other, et cetera. But Mm. beside the point, it's middle school. Um, I said, so they just picked it up and they identified it. And I said, well, why don't you map where the kids find it? And then we can do an analysis of what kinds of scat, animal poop, um, people are they're finding in mm-hmm. one part of the park as opposed to another part of the park. And like light bulbs went off in the science teachers' heads, it had just never occurred to them to actually situate this in a spatial context. And then once they did it, it was just like boom, because the kids could see, you know, we're getting this here because it's wet, and we're getting these here because it's drier, and it just made the whole um, mm-hmm. experience so much richer. It touches a bit on the whole idea of, well, A, we're anchored in space and place. We have a very, it's part of our humanity, the, the, the anchoredness that we have in where we grew up, where we're, we're located now, what, what our study site is. But then also in sort of maps being the a common language between disciplines. But like you're pointing out, oftentimes maybe a history educator or a science educator doesn't think like a geography educator in that maps are fundamentally part of their tool set. They may use them as where is something, but not why things are where they are, right? Yeah, precisely, right. And I always, to history teachers, when I was working with them, I would always say, yeah, geography is not the background. Geography plays an active role in what happens uh, as history unfolds and the events What I want everybody to do is just to add to their mindset, the habit of mind of thinking where and why there and why not someplace else, you know, the kind of very Mm -hmm. essence, Mm -hmm. basic essence. Yeah. Gritzner's uh, what's where, why is it there? Why should we care as well is another piece of that. Absolutely. And I, and I, I mean, I think we're making progress. I mean, you can just open up the New York Times or any other major newspaper, Washington Post, Denver. What is the Denver paper? Denver Denver Post Post is still around. Yep. Okay. Well, anyway, 
open any of these news sources, media sources, and they are so rich with maps now and exploring mm-hmm. where and the dynamics of, of whether it's migration or whether it's the diffusion of COVID or whatever it is. But I think people are becoming very much more aware of uh, the role space plays simply because of mapping technologies and making these kinds of spatial arrays, spatial representation so much more um, appealing and and useful. True. And there's this blurring as well between maps and visualizations. I don't really care if there's a boundary or no boundary, but it, it's like you say, with the flowing data blog and some of those other things there, uh, the tools to create these things are all around us and they're becoming easier to use. In conjunction with that, we do want students to think critically about where did the data come from? Can I trust this map or visualization, right? Anybody can create one of these nowadays, which is good, but yeah, critical yeah, thinking is exactly, important. Exactly, but but it's, it even goes further than that. I mean, if you think about all these phenomena that play an important role in America now, everybody now is familiar with the concept of redlining. I think that's become, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those kind of concepts that, that people are aware of. Um, but that's, in essence, a spatial um, issue. And um, I think that uh, a lot of these um, are becoming more prevalent in terms of, of us understanding the impact humans have on where they live and the spatial manifestation of that and the, the kind of results or consequences of these kinds of spatial decisions that are made. Mm-hmm. And the JHU COVID dashboard alone has been viewed by just about every single person on the planet with a device of some sort. Mm-hmm. So it's sadly the most popular dashboard, but the thousands of other dashboards, not just on health, but on lots of other topics and the infographics and the maps. But, it, that, but th- that places a burden on us as educators. I mean, not just geography educators, but educators across the board to help our students become more critically, to become better critical consumers of all of these visualizations. Indeed. Yes, exactly. Well, that spatial reserves data blog of mine, I know it sounds really boring, but, but related to what you're talking about, I have all kinds of examples of maps that look nice, but we don't know where their sources are or, you know, others that are sort of fun, you know, that people send around to favorite foods in every state. Okay. What what's the end value of, Hey, Sarah, you're from New Mexico. What's your favorite food? I'll put it on the map. You know, I realize a lot of them are just to generate clicks, but uh, yeah, again, just like you're saying, having students to see the value and also the limitations and ask questions of, of maps and mapping related tools. Indeed. And, and it's interesting you mentioned that limitations part of it because um, I'm doing some work with the Advanced Placement Human Geography um, group mm-hmm. of people. And uh, one of their key skills is for students to understand, <clears throat> excuse me, the limitations of data sets, um, quantitative, qualitative data, and spatial representations. And it's been a real learning experience for both the teachers and the students to identify limitations of graphic representations what mm-hmm. what questions mm-hmm. can this ask answer what which can't they address and answer it's a mm-hmm. really nuanced kind of uh, skill and a challenge indeed 
Oh, this is so great. I know we're deviating quite a bit from our <laughs> uh, the discussion questions we talked about, but this is exactly what I was hoping we would actually get into is what really matters in all this. Um, but I do have something I wanted to bring up that was actually in that set of questions that we chatted about, and that is, what's your advice to a new professional in this space, in geotechnologies, education, geography? What's your advice to them? Read the literature. Don't just read what's been published in the last five years. Go back to basic principles. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, a, a second thing is um, to read the literature in cognate disciplines. So what do the learning scientists have to say about the kinds of issues we have? What do the cognitive scientists have to say about um, how students learn. And, you know, as I think you've, we've discussed in the past, learning GIS is really a very complex um, cognitive process. There's procedural knowledge, there's declarative knowledge, there's, um, you know, just kind of all of the kinds of things that you have to combine to be able to be a successful user of geospatial technologies. And I, I think that it's important for uh, new people newly into this whole arena to think in terms of what is the cognitive load you're, you're putting on the learner um, and are there ways that you can better introduce the topic in a way to minimize that cognitive load. So the kid is within their was zone of proximal development, you know, the old um, mm -hmm. uh, concept um, so I, I, that's, that would be it. I would say, how do people learn to think with and through geospatial technologies? Read the literature, think about it deeply, and don't recreate the wheel. Um, which reminds me, speaking of wheels, you know, some years ago now, your colleague Tom Baker and a group of us developed a research agenda in uh, GIS education, geospatial technology agenda. And that would be a piece of advice for me would be for a student to, or a newly hatched professional to track that down and to try to fit what they're interested in researching into the kind of framework that we developed a, a research agenda in geo, geoscience education. Indeed, there were and still are many holes in that table. Yes. That that a grad student or another researcher could could uncover. In fact, they're more relevant than ever before with all of the 21st century issues that we're facing and educational and societal disruption of various kinds. Absolutely. The, these issues that you and I care about and the other people listening to this in the geo ed GIS community, they're becoming more intertwined, complex, and increasingly affecting our everyday lives. And so relevant and connected to what a lot of, hopefully all, but all educators want to have their students actually digging into real issues that, that, are, that matter. Right. And have them think critically and deeply and spatially. Maybe and they don't say spatially, but and, and without bells and whistles, I mean, I, I know a lot of people are really, really interested in virtual reality technologies and doing research with how people can use these for virtual field trips or virtual field work or whatever. To me, that's kind of less interesting, kind an area less interesting in terms of just, I, I would say that that's frill rather than foundation. And I think we need to do some, a lot of foundational work what are the conditions under which we can really help students to learn 
to use geospatial technologies? Are there gender related differences? What are the things that we can do as educators to compensate for these socioeconomic and gender differences? So, I, I mean, I, I really would like us to think fundamentally rather than kind of, wow, this is a cool technology. What can it do? What can't it do? And especially uh, nowadays when I'm sure educators get daily emails from technology vendors saying, hey, there's a cool tool. There's a cool tool. They can't do it all. They shouldn't do it all. My sort of mantra to educators over the years has been use the most appropriate tool for the job because sometimes educators come to me. They know I work at Esri and they're kind of, oh, Joseph, I'm using Google Earth for this particular lesson. I'm like, hey, (laughs) if it meets your instructional goals, use it. You know, use GIS where it's appropriate. Use visualizations where they're Use the most appropriate tool for the job. So, yeah, to your point, indeed. Also to use... Um, to use tools we have to evaluate the curriculum materials. I mean, are, are these curriculum materials uh, the best ones we can use to help support students to develop this sense of spatial representation, spatial awareness? Right. There's been progress, but there's still lots of gaps in the, in the curricular materials that we have. But also there's a sense of, maybe you can comment on this, the amount of curricular materials developed will always lag probably increasingly behind the the amount that people want to generate. And so one of the goals on geospatial technology in education, whether it's science or math or whatever, geography, Mm -hmm. is give people, students and faculty, some confidence so that they don't say, I have to have a lesson on this topic or that topic. I I need a lesson on the 18... 10 expansion of France. Well, we don't have a lesson on that, but here are some resources and here are some tools so you can actually teach that concept with some of these tools. You, you know what I'm getting at? It's yeah. like, we won't have a lesson for every single thing and maybe we shouldn't. And, and that drives, I mean, that addresses the whole issue of what is the curriculum? Is the curriculum skill-based or is it content-based? And is there some way we can really, really meld those two things together? So the focus is not just on the route that Hannibal's elephants took over the Alps, but can students, you know, follow a a diffusion uh, process using various kind of maps and globes and things like that? So to me, it's it's the idea that to get away from the content, but to also Mm -hmm. think in terms of what are the skills and capabilities that you're developing in your students that so that the end in a way that they can transfer what they've learned from this particular context to another context, to another context, to another context. So that idea of teaching for transfer. And as you're touching on earlier, it is, that's hard. And we're still trying to model this complex world in, even though the GIS technology has advanced, it's still, it's still a complex earth. And so we're never going to get to the point and, probably we shouldn't get to the point where we're click, 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 and all of our problems are solved. We still need to use this tool, your brain, and we still want people to think carefully about, hey, even taking the default settings in your GIS software, what are the default settings? Maybe you should override those from time to time. How do you override them? You know, like when the smart mapping first was developed in, you know, ArcGIS Online, it's like, wow, this is fascinating. So I've got two variables. One is a graduated color and one's a graduated symbol. Well, that's the reason why that's the default is because that works for a lot of situations, but maybe the, the two variables you're mapping, you need to use something different. 
to more effectively communicate what the patterns and relationships are. So know how to use the tools, like you said, so you can transfer to other situations and variables, and even even on a practical level of overriding the default settings. Right. <laughs> matters. Exactly. Technology can't answer every question that we have. So you have to think of what, you know, either change your question or think of a, of a, a better way, that, a different technology that can answer a question. Kind of related to what you were saying before, some people have, you, others, have said this for a long time. And so having the encouragement to, you know, go back into that literature, I would also add at a conference, go to something that is completely outside of your wheelhouse, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I did this. At, I, I try to tell people to do this. And then I said, Joseph, you need to practice what you're preaching. So I went to the social work track at uh, AAG and it was fascinating. I met some new people. I learned about their methods and, and many of them were spatial. It was just great because it really expanded my horizons. And I just I like to encourage people to do that as well. That's right. Thinking outside the box. <laughs> Yay. Okay. We're, we're kind of running out of time, Sarah. I really appreciate the, the the gracious nature of you spending time with us today. But here's another thing that I'm wondering about, given the complex nature of education, the, the journey that you and I and others have been on, mm-hmm. are, you, are you confident that we're making progress? And what would be the one thing that you think we would need to be focused on for the at least maybe the rest of this decade, or maybe just a few years out? Those two elements. There is very little professional development now to help teachers. It, it, has, it has diminished. Teacher, teachers teaching teachers is a very powerful model. It works extremely well. For instance, in the Advanced Placement Human Geography Facebook group, people post a question and you know, 10 to 15 people have answers right away. That, that's a very powerful model. I, I think that ongoing, we need more professional development, but we also need to get in there in the, in the classrooms of pre-service educators. This, is, this teacher education is a huge crisis and the turnover in teachers is immense. So it's, a, it's like never ending. We get people trained up and then they, they retire or they go for another career. Um, and and t- so to a certain degree, that's a little frustrating, but it also uh, means that we, we have to keep thinking of better and more efficient ways to keep people, people involved and to develop their, their skills and interests. Very good point. Your co-editor on the Spatial Citizenship Education, Dr. Shin, there at Northern Illinois, she's mm-hmm. one of the few educators that I know that are in this space, but also actively in a school of education working with pre-service ed. Right. That is an extremely difficult zone to get in, but I agree with you. And Charlie Fitzpatrick, my teammate, and I conducted a geospatial, it was, week, it was a week long, eat, sleep, and breathe geospatial technology in pre-service ed. So science, social studies. And I thought, this is great. We did it at Roger Williams University with mm-hmm. Richard Audet way back, gosh, 1999. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. Sarah, we're going to do this every year. It didn't happen every year all kinds of challenges we could talk about, but, and, and all relating to your point about the, the, the challenges that educators have to find the time to do this, that they're supported in doing this. I mean, T3G, Teachers Teaching Teachers GIS, that right. ran face-to-face for eight years in Redlands. 
and then for a couple years online and now we've got a you know a monthly webinar in a community but as the even the the face to face years wore on it was more and more difficult for educators to spend the 6 days on site doing this it was just you know life other pressures that they had in the summer it was it it it's it's a huge challenge but the nice thing of course on the positive side is that we do have lots of ways this whole thing I was talking about with the, the Western New York uh, social studies mm-hmm. educators, they got together a couple of times this past summer in a big auditorium, but most of it's been virtual. And they have lots of engagement with this. That's an encouraging sign. And I, mm-hmm. I think that that's a very powerful model um, and we need to continue to support that. You know, it's interesting, National Geographic Society now is, is kind of bypassing teachers to a certain degree and working directly with students. And maybe that's something that we need to, to think about doing, having more programs. We invite the teachers, but they're not the object of the attention. It's the students themselves. Maybe that's something, a new model to try as well. Very good point. On a practical level there. It's as a, a related. Oh, well, I was just going to share that every, every quarter we have this ESRI education newsletter. And we have one for campus administrators, and we have one that's directed at uh, instructors, teachers, professors, and then we have one that's directed at students. The one that's the most challenging to write always is the one for students. It's like, okay, we can talk about jobs in the, in the profession and courses you can take, but what directly appeals to students uh, with, with not just geotechnology, but their own learning? What, what is appealing to them? I, I'd love to talk with you more about that. Because I agree with you, if we wanted to start this movement in getting people excited about geography in maybe a slightly different way than we've been doing, uh, we've got to be more actively with students. Do you have a TikTok channel? Oh, I do. Yes. Well, there you go. (laughs) I've got these little short videos on, but, but mine are about, you know, why we should care about the planet and that sort of thing. They're not, you know, flashy, uh, you know, so I'm not the most exciting person to look at, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. Um, and certainly we're really active on Instagram and some other platforms. So yeah, yeah. We, we basically try all of these different angles, hoping that's figuring okay. out what, what will stick. Right. And it's great to be on this journey with you, Sarah, uh, for all these years. Gosh, still mapping after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> Before you let me go, though, Joe, so, um, I think that the youth mappers movement, mm-hmm. um, whether it's open source mapping or what, you know, because I think many young people really are interested in giving back to their community, helping people worldwide, on, uh, improving resiliency amongst communities and mapping through mapping. I think that's a very powerful route to appeal to young people's altruistic motives. Very good point. Yes. Encourage the listener to look at uh, youthmappers.org. That's been going on for 15 years at least. And there are hundreds and hundreds of students active on an annual basis. Yes. That is a good one. High school and university is one of those nice cross cross-level efforts. So Sarah, do you have any parting, you know, words of wisdom or advice for us as we, as we sort of close out the session today? I'm, I'm, I'm confident that you and I will keep having conversations. Something that I've been thinking a lot about uh, in, because of current events, what's happening in the world right now, that I, I think that 
one of the ways that geographers can really contribute to some of our uh, concerns about justice and um, equity and diversity and inclusion is through making sure that we include a diverse range of communities. And I know that you're, you've worked with tribal communities and with um, indigenous peoples and uh, black and Hispanic students. I think we as geographers need to think about how we can craft our message to include more diverse voices in understanding the, the role that space plays in our society. That would mm. just be, I, that's a kind of an aspect of, of, of um, spatial citizenship, but that whole kind of Jedi outreach is, I think, key to our future. I'm right with you. And, and when we think about yeah, those issues that you mentioned, climate, water, all the UN SDGs, we need a, a wider diversity of people with different backgrounds, et cetera, to weigh in on these problems and to be able to solve them. Indeed. And to, res to respect these various perspectives people bring to it as well. Dr. Bednars, it's been, it's been a joy. Thank you, Dr. Not Kirstie. just today, but uh, working with you these, these many years. and Low these many years. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a good journey, though. And I'm, I'm an optimist. I think we can get a handle on these perplexing issues. But we've got to, I think, adhere to some of the things you're talking about, maybe be a little more forthright about why space and place and the geographic perspective matters. Maybe we've been a bit too quiet, perhaps. I agree. We, we need more radical geographers, more radical geography education, um, more critical thinking in terms of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Indeed, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joseph. Listen to more GeoInspirations, watch webinars, or catch up on the geospatial news at directionsmag.com. <laughs>